Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. My name is Gary Cacciolo, your host, and today we have Jeff Denelik, author of a lot of books. <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, so some of the topics that you write on in your books are pretty interesting. Um, you have reincarnation, UFOs. Um, you have some spiritual things that you've written about. Um, what got you interested in all these uh, varied subjects? Well, I, I guess that's what kept me away from girls when I was in high school. I would, uh, <laughs> I would get into stuff like Bermuda Triangle and Bigfoot and UFOs. And uh, as I got older, um, my interests remained in those things. And so I thought, well, maybe I could uh, research them a little bit and put them together into a book form and uh, look at these things a little bit more rationally or objectively and see if uh, anybody responded to it. I obviously did because you kept on writing. Yeah, I've had a little bit of success with it. Um, it's, it's been kind of a work in progress. I kind of work from one thing and then I go into something else and that leads me on to some other subject. And so what I, I don't really have any one area of expertise, but I just kind of know a little bit about a lot of it. It's kind of like me. I'm a bit of the same way. I tend to just sort of bounce around. Yeah, I saw on your, on your uh, website that you have quite a range of different, uh, different subjects. I guess that's really almost the, the way you have to do it if you're going to do this kind of thing. I guess so. I mean, some people are able to like, just stick with like, just UFOs or just Bigfoot or cryptids. Um, I don't know. I like to try to – I think one of, the, one of the purposes of my podcast is to try to get a look at the big picture, I think. Mm-hmm whatever that is. Right. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I'm uh, interested in a lot of different things. I've never really been a a specific person. I'm more of a generalist because there's just so many interesting things out there. You can't really just limit yourself to one of them, even though that would probably be more uh, more lucrative financially if you just become like a UFO guy or a Bigfoot guy. But I'm just not built that way, I guess. Yes, me either. Plus, when it comes to the unexplained, I I think they're probably connected somehow. Like, in the back of my mind, like, sort of like that's the ultimate goal for me is to try to connect all the dots. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you've written, I think this was an essay called The Illusion of Matter. Um, Is that, like, based on, like, quantum theory? Right. It's basically what quantum mechanics has discovered actually quite a few years ago that everything is really made up of just empty space. So what we think is solid is actually 99.999% nothing. Uh, And it's just interesting to me how it's almost a uh, holographic universe that we live in where everything appears different than what it really is from just looking at it. Uh, but I'm not original in any of that. That's been around, those ideas have been around for a very long time, ever since really we discovered the atom and realized that 
no matter how much you broke it apart, there really wasn't anything in it. Just a little bit of energy. Yes. Um, like I know you're also, you know, pretty well versed in religion. Um, like I know, like I've read a little bit about like the Kabbalah and stuff like that, which also sort of hints or, or really just talks about like this idea of the of creation being holographic too. Have you ever um, made that type of connection between some of your spiritual work and some of your more metaphysical? Well, um, give you a little background. I started out as an evangelical Christian when I was 21 years old. And so I was pretty steeped in the Bible. Uh, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about uh, the nature of reality. Uh, basically, God creates everything just by sort of thinking it into existence. Um, so that didn't really give me a lot of that information, which is probably why I started to explore other uh, spiritual paths, especially Eastern religion, because I found in there a lot more answers to these sorts of questions. And uh, I didn't see a lot of a link between religion and spirituality at the time, although I, I look, look back on it now, and I do think that I can see that Jesus was teaching a lot of metaphysical concepts that a lot of evangelical or fundamentalist Christians don't really see. But I look at it from the context of Eastern beliefs, and I see a lot of what Jesus says is, uh, would resonate with a lot of Buddhists and, and Hindus. Yeah. Uh, I believe there's even some people that theorize that Jesus may have studied Buddhism in his early life. That's not accounted for in the Bible. Well, it's entirely possible, although he would have had to travel quite a distance to get to uh, where that was taught. Uh, there is good evidence, though, that he was uh, an Essene, which was a kind of a spiritual Jewish sect. You've heard of the Sadducees and the Pharisees in the Bible. There was another group called the Essenes, mm -hmm. and they believed in a lot of uh, Eastern sort of concepts like reincarnation and things like that. They believe Jesus may have been an Essene, and then he left that eventually and went off on his own and started his own ministry. Interesting. So they don't tell us that in the Bible. Well, it's not mentioned in the Bible, but it's, it's more uh, what researchers have done once they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948. They found that these were put there by the Essenes. These, these scrolls were saved by them, and they looked at what the Essenes taught, and they found that a lot of what they taught was very consistent with what Jesus was teaching. So they put one and one together and figured, you know, he must have been influenced or even a part of that group at one point uh, because his, his, uh, his teachings so closely parallel a lot of what they were teaching. Hmm. Were they, uh, did they ever talk about reincarnation? Right. Actually, uh, even uh, in Kabbalist Judaism, reincarnation is taught. So uh, I do believe that was a, a very old belief long before even uh, Christianity came along that uh, even asked uh, Jesus, you know, who are you? Are you, uh, are you one of the old prophets? You know, come back, which was implying that they were asking him if he had reincarnated, if he was like Isaiah who had reincarnated. So uh, the area of Israel at that time was steeped in a lot of other religious traditions like the Greeks, uh, Greek uh, religions, um, some Roman beliefs, and so reincarnation was a big part of those. And so it's very likely, but it's not 
proven definitively in the Bible, but it's very likely that uh, Jesus was uh, taught reincarnation or believed it in some form. I wonder if he believed it, because he also talked a lot about the, the kingdom of heaven. Right. He talked about the kingdom of heaven being within you or at hand is what he said, basically. So he was making the point was that heaven wasn't a place that you die and go to, uh, but it's a, it's a state of mind that exists here now if you can just find a way of realizing it. And how you realize it is by recognizing the, the divinity within yourself and within everyone else. And once you reach that, that level of understanding, that sort of nirvana, then you're essentially living in heaven. By the same token, not realizing this can help you live in, in a state of hell. So it's really kind of heaven and hell are both sorts of states of consciousness that you live while you're alive in many ways. Sounds a lot like Buddhism and trying to get out of the cycle of samsara. Exactly right. Uh, there was a, an early Christian sect called the, uh, the Gnostics, which were sort of vying for power with the, the larger Christian sects. And they, they were very much uh, esoteric, metaphysical Christians. And they, uh, they taught that you reincarnated, you kept reincarnating until you finally reached enlightenment. And then you stopped. That's how you stop the wheel, which is very, I don't know if Hinduism allows you to stop because each time you come into a life, you pick up more karma. So you yeah. got to work off the karma each time. And so it's almost impossible to break the cycle. So what Buddha did is he gave them a, a, a key to doing that, which was enlightenment. Once they reached that, that would break the wheel of samsara. Um, so really, in some ways, Buddhism was almost like the Protestant Reformation equivalent of Hinduism, that, that the Protestant Reformation was for, for Catholicism, if you think about it that way. It's just kind of a, another take on it that was more complete and probably more useful to people. Do you think that Jesus was really like a son of God, or do you think he was um, using that as like an analogy to get people to kind of look inward. I believe what Jesus was saying was that uh, he is both human and divine at the same time, but not exclusively. He wasn't saying, I'm, I'm the son of God and you're not. He said, I'm the son of God in the same way that you are. So I, I think what he's trying to do is get people to understand their own inherent divinity. Remember, the Bible says that God created us in his image, you know, in his likeness. Since God is spirit, that means basically we are created the same stuff God is made out of. So all humans really are just God stuff in, in human form, having a, having a human experience. And I think that's what was Jesus' point, was that, yes, I'm God, and so are you, and everybody else you know, even the people you don't like. And once you realize that, the, you, know, you would have heaven on earth, because you're not going to hurt yourself, you're not going to kill or steal uh, from yourself if everything is God and you're part of that. You, you, you wouldn't even need rules or laws. You would be able to just live your life in peace uh, and get along with everybody because you know that to hurt someone else would be to hurt yourself. Um, he also, I guess that would explain too why he also sometimes referred to himself not as just the son of God, but also sometimes as the son of man, didn't he? 
Right. He was trying to emphasize both his divinity and his humanity at the same time. In other words, we have a tendency to want him to be one or the other. You know, we can handle a human being and we can handle a God, but it's hard for us to really get our brains around a human being who also is God. So that's what he was trying to do is emphasize that I'm just like you folks. I'm just a, I'm the son of man. I'm, I'm an offspring of, of, you know, human parents just like you are. Yet at the same time, I'm also the son of God. I'm the offspring of the of divine, uh, divine wisdom and knowledge. And so he was trying to make both points at once. But we, what we have done, or what the church has done, is they sort of overlooked his humanity and emphasized his divinity. So that the point now he becomes almost unreachable for a lot of people. They think, well, Jesus is so high up there. He's such a wonderful person. I couldn't possibly compete with that which I think is exactly the opposite of what he was trying to get through. Right. And also by doing that, they deny everybody else their own divinity as well. Right, exactly. If you see everybody as just uh, things that God created, you know, and God's out there somewhere just popping people out, and then it's, it's real easy, I think, to judge people and say, well, you're, you know, you're, you, you're not this, you're not that. And therefore, you even have the right to, you know, kill them under the right circumstances. What he was basically saying is that whatever you do to the least of them, you do to me. So if you, if you take another life, what you're doing is essentially hurting yourself. You, you've destroyed a part of your own divinity that was in human form. And I think if people understood that and really thought about that and applied it in their life, we'd have a much different world today than we now have. Does that kind of connect with like one of your essays called uh, The Lawless Society? Right. I was basically making the point that we have laws because we don't understand our own divinity. So we have to have things in place to prevent us from doing harm to each other. But if you were truly enlightened or if you're truly conscious, you would... Uh, you wouldn't need laws. A truly spiritual or enlightened society wouldn't have any laws at all because uh, they wouldn't need them. Because nobody would ever think of harming another person. They would, it would never even occur to them. But we, until we get to that point as a society, we have to have laws. Um, but someday they will be hopefully obsolete. Do you think there are certain points, like even now, where some laws are just counterproductive? Oh, yeah, I think a lot of them are, are anachronisms from an earlier time, uh, especially a lot of the uh, sexual morse laws and stuff like that. Um, so much of it was trying a, a kind of an attempt to legislate morality, and you really can't do that because people are still going to do what they want to do. Um, I mean, laws that protect you from harm, laws that protect your property, things like that, we still need those. But a lot of the laws, I think that, uh, are on the books today uh, really need to be looked at carefully. And in some cases, we probably still need them for a while, but I think that uh, just like anything else, they're going to modify and evolve over time. I hope so. You know, I, I one of the things that always bothers me is, I, is seeing people going to jail, losing their freedom for what I would call victimless crimes. Right. Yeah, there is quite a few. Like, for example, prostitution. I, I'm not clear on why that exactly is a crime. Uh, if it's between consenting adults, 
uh, it seems to me that, you know, if that's what you want to do, then you should have the right to do that. Um, and then a lot of the crimes where it's fairly petty, but you have a rap sheet is going to end you up in jail. So there are, there's a lot of inequities in our laws. Uh, it's probably better than it has been in the past, but it still has a long ways to go to where it's truly, I think, just and fair. Um, listening to you, it sounds like you've come a long way from being an evangelical, evangelical Christian to where you are now. Well, you know, I, I like to think I kept the best of it, uh, you know, Jesus' teachings, his examples, uh, and then got rid of a lot of the stuff that I thought was really inserted by humans. A lot of the, uh, the, the laws of the Old Testament, a lot of the judgments, a lot of the punishments, you know, they used to kill you for everything from adultery, homosexuality, uh, worshiping another god, everything would, would kill you. I think those were all written by men. Um, they were just a reflection of their culture at the time. But uh, a lot of the best parts of the New Testament, and even some of the really nice parts of the Old Testament, like some of the Psalms and some of the wisdom uh, writings, uh, I still find useful today. Um, so usually when a person leaves a faith, they tend to re, you know, throw away the whole thing. And I, I think that's a mistake. I think you keep what, what you find valuable and uh, let the rest of it go. You, you'll find that you won't really need it after a while. Hmm. Well, what, was, what made you change, like start disregarding some of the harsh judgment ideas? Was it making you uncomfortable? Just like, you know, this is, isn't for me when you hear like that harshness. I think what did it was uh, the, the concept of hell. It never made sense to me, even when I was really heavily involved in the church. It never made sense that a person could go to hell simply for failing to become a Christian, basically. You know, you could be born in the wrong place, the wrong time. You might have had professing Christian parents who were brutal. And so you never became a Christian. And for that, you went to hell. And that really bothered me a lot. And I had other issues with the church, such as the rapture and the second coming and the antichrist and all of this stuff that they talked about that just seems so unlikely to me that I started to do some other research. Now I was in the church for 20 years, so this wasn't an overnight thing. This took quite a while, right? but I started to uh, look into reincarnation uh, and uh, that's kind of got me started on this road towards other ideas and in fact, that was actually the impetus behind my, my first book, Mystery of Reincarnation. Um, I actually have a friend who's a, a Catholic priest, and I had asked him about the hell question, the hell question because it's one of the things that bothers me also. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of funny. He, he surprised me with his answer. His answer was, hell is just something that you create for yourself here on earth. <laughs> I'm surprised that a priest would tell you that. Yeah. yeah I think there's a lot of uh, people within the Christian community uh, who have questions about these things. And they're, they're kind of being quiet about it because for a priest, for example, to come out and say, I don't believe in hell, would get him excommunicated. So he has to kind of keep it on the QT. But uh, I, I find that when I talk to uh, Christians, unless they're really super hardcore fundamentalists, they're open to things like reincarnation and hell as a conditional state. 
because they've seen it in their own life. They, they've seen people who live in heaven and hell right on earth. So it's not that hard to imagine that it's a condition rather than a, a place of punishment. Hmm. So I live in Alabama and I had a job where I had to drive uh, these guys to church on Sunday and had to sit through some of the church ceremonies. And I think the churches that we we're going to were like, they were like assembly of God churches or something. Mm-hmm. And um, what disturbed me was they spent more time talking about politics. Really? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I mean, the entire church service was a plug for the Republican Party. Right. Yeah, I, I see that too a lot. Uh, you go into a uh, almost any church parking lot around election time, and you'll find you know bumper stickers on a lot of cars for right-wing candidates. And then you go into a more uh, Eastern-based uh, churches, and you look in their parking lot, and a lot of it's more left of center. Uh, I think that politics has a role to play in religion. Um, you, you, I still think you have an obligation to vote, if you're, uh, whether you're a religious or spiritual person or not. But the, the problem I see, and I saw this in the church a lot, was it has a tendency to let their politics create their morality or dictate their morality. So they, if, if the Republican Party comes up with a platform that sounds a little cruel, maybe it's like anti-immigration. And a lot of Christians are uncomfortable with just throwing people out of the country or breaking up families or trying to get in illegally. They'll subjugate that because that's what the church is, you know, teaches. Or that's what the Republican Party teaches so they don't want to mess with that. And it's unfortunate that a lot of people kind of uh, don't let the, their spirituality take precedence over their politics. I think if people thought, what would Jesus do first, before they thought, what would Trump have me do, I think it would be a very different party. I think so, too, because, I don't know, I think to me... Jesus seemed like he was a pretty open guy. Yeah, I, I have trouble believing that Jesus would have broken up families trying to cross the border, you know, and taking the kids away from the parents. Um, you know, I, I just don't see that happening. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I, I, I do think that uh, this is an opportunity for people to really sort of think about what they believe and why they believe it and whether they believe it because well, they just always believe that or because they really think it's true. And I'm hoping that more people in the church will kind of wake up uh, to, to some of the injustices in our, in our country and uh, not give up the church or anything, but just try to make it more Christ-like in the way they look at things. Absolutely. Because, I, you know, I know, it's, I know for me, the story of Jesus is one about acceptance and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. It, it's not really a story about judgment and going to hell and having to live a certain way by certain rules. You know? Well, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, I, Jesus was never a, a, a hellfire and damnation kind of person. He mentions... He mentions uh, Sheol, and, and I guess that's translated as hell a couple of times, but he was talking about a, uh, he talks about Gehenna, 
which is the, uh, the city dump. This is where you used to throw all the refuse and it was burning. And it would burn all the time, 24 hours a day. And he would talk about having your soul thrown into Gehenna because the people understood what that was. They understood that was the burning dump. But what he was talking about was being refined by fire. So not going to hell and being punished, but going through the challenges of life that sort of uh, burn away the dross and leave just the, the gold underneath. And so um, those, those, and he was also dealing with a, with a crowd, with a people that had very simple understanding of God anyway. So he had to kind of work in a language that they would understand. But I think the point he was trying to make was that, you know, you, you, uh, you go through things in life that change you, that alter you, that make you more compassionate, more loving. And that's kind of like being burned in the fires of Gehenna. It's going to sort of refine you. And so he was never wanting people to be punished. He was wanting people to be changed or to, be, uh, to evolve spiritually. And um, there's no better way to do that than in the, just be here on this planet and just putting up with the things we have to put up with. If that doesn't help you refine, <laughs> I don't know what would do it. Right, so it's kind of like inner alchemy. Exactly, exactly. Your, your salvation lies within yourself. And so does your condemnation, if you think about it. If you decide to live a life of pure uh, selfishness and cruelty, you're going to have a very hellish experience in this life. You know, you're not going to have a good time. You might have a lot of stuff, but you're not going to really have any peace or contentment or joy or love. And I think that's what hell was. And that's what Jesus was trying to warn people about. It's that you got to give up the judgment. You got to give up the hatred or else you're just not going to really have much fun on this planet for the short time you're here. And I think if we all understood it that context, I think it would make a big difference. What would you think if, um, like, like say Jesus had to, like, two groups of people, a group of people that accept the things the way they are and just practice meditation, and then there's another group of people that have 100% faith in God, but all they do is pray to him, asking him for favors. Well, yeah, I think he was talking about the, the sheep and the goats. And the goats here were people who had the form of religion. They were, they were very good about um, doing all the rituals, making sure that they did everything correctly as they understood it. And then the, the sheep were the people who kind of didn't do that. They, they felt that they weren't worthy of God, that they were outside of God's grace because they couldn't do all of the right rituals at the right time. And they might have had to do a few things kind of a little under the, you know, under the covers of darkness to get, to get by. And Jesus came to those people, the lost sheep, and he says, you know, God, God uh, isn't interested in your religious practices, your observances. Those things are kind of fine, and they have a place if it means something to you, but that's not what God is looking for. He's just looking for a contrite heart, someone who is teachable, someone who wants to get right with God. And not that you really can't be right with God. Everybody is right to God, whether they know it or not. They just don't know it. But he was wanting them to understand that you don't need all these rituals to come to God. All you need to do is, is, is a heart for God. And the rest of it will take care of itself. Do you think there was a difference? Like one of this, I noticed that you've heard some things about, you know, historical Jesus versus, 
you know, I guess the, the biblical version of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess maybe what you're talking about there is like, you know, Jesus as a human being and as a teacher um, versus somebody who is um, performing miracles for a crowd? Right. Well, there's, there is two Jesuses. There is the historical Jesus, and then there is the metaphorical Jesus or the religious Jesus. And the problem when I was in the church for 20 years is that I was aware of the religious Jesus, but I could never really have a relationship with him because he seemed way up there and kind of inaccessible, inaccessible. Uh, but the, the historical Jesus seems more like a real person that you could sit and talk to. Um, he performed miracles, but if you look at Eastern beliefs, um, Eastern beliefs believe that you can create reality with your own mind. So yes. your own thoughts. So he's basically showing that maybe that's true. Maybe you can make yourself well by, by your own thoughts. Remember, Jesus once said, uh, your faith has made you whole. He healed the man, I believe, of leprosy or blindness. I'm not sure which it was. And he wanted to thank Jesus. And he says, you know, don't thank me. Your faith has made you whole. In other words, you did this to yourself. I didn't do this. I'm just uh, the catalyst to show you how it works but you're the one who had to make that step. Because there was a lot of people that were blind and lame in Jesus's day, and not all of them were healed. They didn't all suddenly be able to walk and, and see again. Only some of them did. Those are the ones, I think, who really had the faith in God, the faith that they had the power within themselves to affect matter, even if they didn't understand how it worked, and took the step of faith to do it. And those are the ones that stand out in the, in the gospel accounts. It makes it look like Jesus is going around snapping his fingers and healing people. But he's not. He's, he's, he's basically just dealing with people on a very basic spiritual level. And those that are ready to hear it seem to be able to respond to it and move on and actually affect miraculous healings in their life. You see that all the time in, uh, in Eastern religion where there's spontaneous remissions of cancers and all kinds of things like that based really just on the power of, uh, of the mind or on the heart, I guess. Yeah. And that, and that sort of goes back to that. Um, the quantum physics idea of where m- matter is affected by consciousness. In fact, without consciousness, matter doesn't even exist. Exactly. Yeah. It seems like uh Consciousness is the the glue that kind of holds everything together. So it makes sense that you should be able to change your reality based upon your consciousness, your thoughts. Now, it sounds a little woo-woo or a little bit unlikely or magical, but if you think about it, it makes sense. If you're you're someone who thinks you're going to get sick, chances are you probably will. You know, you ever met someone who says, oh, I'll catch the flu this year, or I'll get COVID-19 because I catch everything. And then you find out a month later, sure enough, they did. You know, and then there's people who say, oh, I'm not worried about it. I never get sick. I have, a, I have a tremendous constitution. And they never seem to get sick, or very rarely. Yeah. Um, I, I do that all the time. I always say, I, I never get sick. I never get sick. I never get sick. And very rarely do I get sick. And even when I'm sick, my wife will go, oh, you're sick. And I said, no, I'm not sick. It's, it's all in my mind. <laughs> I drive her crazy with that. 
Well, I mean, there is such a thing as a biological component of things. You know, there's germs and stuff. But uh, I do think that how you look at those things will affect your immune system. And so that's what they're talking about. I have a good friend who's a hypnotherapist, and he would work with women who were incapable of conceiving. And uh, he even wrote a book about it. And he works with women, and he hypnotizes them, and he gets them to go through some of the blocks in their life why they can't conceive. And he has like a 60% success rate of getting these women will eventually go ahead and conceive after they have several treatments with him. And that's like, uh, I think the success rate of using just medical science is something like 15 or 20% best. And he's getting like a 60, 65% success rate just by hypnotizing these women and getting them to deal with some of the issues, uh, usually having to do with whether they would be good mothers and stuff like that. If they think that they wouldn't be a good mother or they're afraid of it, they often won't conceive. No matter how many times they go to a fertilization clinics and stuff like that. And then he just noticed that women who t- tended to uh, uh, adopt somebody, you know, within a, six months of adoption, they were, they were pregnant. It's like it took that whole, that whole energy out of them. And then they were suddenly able to, you know, their body worked the way it was supposed to. Wow. So there is something to be said for, uh, for mind. Well, I don't th- call it mind over matter or just the way you shape your own reality. You're going to have to hook me up with this hypnotherapist. I would love to talk with him. Oh, he's a good friend of mine. You know, I'll send you uh, his email link to his site. Yeah, definitely. I'll definitely. That'd be a very interesting conversation. I've talked to a lot of hypnotherapists, but none that have been able to do that. Well, he's also the one who uh, did my past life regression when I was investigating reincarnation. And uh, so we became good friends after that. So, uh, yeah, he's a good guy. And what did you find out during the past life session? Well, uh, we went back three lifetimes. And uh, one of them I was not too surprised about. My last life, I was apparently a German soldier in Russia in World War II. Uh, And that explained a lot of my high school. my high school years, when I was very interested in German stuff, I took German in school. I used to wear these big black boots that were like jack boots. You know, just I was just re- really interested in World War II. So I kind of was a, a thought maybe that was a part of it. And then before that, I was a uh, history professor in New England in the 1890s. And, uh, and then before that, apparently I was a street thug in London in the early 18, like 1830s, 1840s. So it was really interesting. I don't know how much further we could have gone back, but uh, the, the first two really sort of surprised me because I wasn't really – well, the second one not so much because I am in the history, so that made sense. But a street thug in London doesn't sound much like me in this <laughs> time, you know. No, that's a little bit more like me. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> let's see. Reading so much stuff, um, like I kind of know, like, like uh, you probably didn't expect coming out here and me talking about Jesus so much, but I have to be honest. Like, I've had a friend who um, is a history professor at Drexel, and mm-hmm. he's teaching a course on the historical Jesus. And I tried to get him on, and he said, "No, no, I won't do it." <laughs> and, and my Catholic priest friend, I've tried to get him on. He's like, "Nah, I'm not doing it." So, oh, wow. So I got you on here. I'm taking advantage of it. 
Well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I, it was one of my favorite, uh, favorite subjects. Um, well, one of the questions I always had about Jesus, too, is the crucifixion and the resurrection. Mm-hmm. I had read somewhere, and um, I, I don't remember where. It's just one of those things that has stuck with me, um, that Judas was Jesus's twin brother mm-hmm. and um, and Judas betrayed Jesus and then later felt guilty about it and traded places with Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. Like rather than actually physically resurrecting, they actually just saw Jesus, you know, trying to get out of town. <laughs> Yeah, that, that came out of the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, it's funny you should mention uh, Judas, though, because uh, I did write a novel called Friend of God in which I look at the crucifixion from the perspective of Judas Iscariot, why he did it and what he was trying to accomplish. Because I don't believe the story in the Bible that he just was greedy and he just wanted some extra money. I always thought that there was more motive than that. He was just using that as an excuse. And uh, if you ever get a chance, it's called Friend for God, in which Friend of God, and mm-hmm. it's it's on my website. But it, it's the whole story of the uh, that Passover week. Uh, what is your website? Just so my listeners know. Oh, it's ourcuriousworld.com. O u r you know curious c u r i u s world w r l d dot com, and all my books are on there. You can click on the link there, and it'll take you right over to Amazon or, or the publisher to buy it. Yeah, and I want to put a link in the notes to this episode. Great, thank you. I also have another website that deals just with spirituality, religion, and reincarnation by itself. It's called questforspirit.org. That's Q-U-E-S-T and the number four, and then S-P-I-R-I-T dot org. It's Quest for Spirit. So I got two websites up and running. Yes, I checked that one out too. A lot of interesting stuff there. Get back to your uh, question about the crucifixion. Um, Mm -hmm. That's always been uh, one of the harder sticking points for me. You know, Jesus was basically a a moral teacher. Then why did he need to be crucified? And did he actually resurrect? And, I mean, that could be a whole show in itself. But my belief is, and this is in that book, is that Jesus believed that he was his message was being usurped by his personality. In other words, people were starting to make him into uh, the, 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 the source of worship rather than his teachings. So in order for him to, to really uh, move on, he had to leave the seat. Plus, there was a lot, he was getting a lot of unwanted attention. When the Romans saw that somebody had a big following, they immediately had a big target on their back because of sedition. They were so worried that, you know, he was going to be a seditionist. So he had to die, I believe, to essentially get his followers to scatter so they would not become a target of Roman persecution and probably death. And that was the reason that he allowed himself to be crucified. Plus he needed to get out of the scene so that his followers, his disciples, uh, had kind of a free hand to move forward with it. Otherwise, they were just going to st- uh, stay with him no matter what happened. For the next 40 years, um, you know, they would have never gotten anywhere. They would have just stayed at his feet and, and never gone off on their own to start all these other churches. Right. So I believe that's the reason that he allowed himself to be crucified. He needed to end that threat to those people. 
Now, the resurrection is a different story. Um, I'm personally not necessarily convinced that Jesus resurrected. I think that there was a story that he had, and it grew into sort of a legend. You know how those things happen. It happens pretty easily. You know, you yeah. know someone starts a, you can see that on social media. You can start some erroneous thing, and, and within 24 hours, 70,000 people have downloaded it. <laughs> you know, so it, it took a little bit longer back then before the Internet. But you know, it's interesting because the, old, the first gospel is the gospel of Mark. And the gospel of Mark, the last half of the 16th chapter, uh, does not exist in the earliest manuscript. Somebody added it later. And that's the story of the resurrection. Because in the, in the original gospel of Mark, it ends with the women going to the, the tomb and finding it empty. And that's where it ends. And then someone came by later and added the resurrection to the last, like the last eight or nine verses were all added. Mm-hmm. And then Matthew picked up off Mark's book and wrote the, the gospel of Matthew. And of course he expands upon the whole resurrection. And my point is, is that there really doesn't seem to be any evidence of the resurrection because he appears only to people who already believed in him. You know, he doesn't appear to Pontius Pilate. He doesn't show up in front of the, the priests at the, at the temple. He just shows up in front of his believers, which to me means that it's not that they made it up, but maybe that this is a vision they had, or this is what they, what they kind of assumed was going to happen. And it just spread from there because there was rumors that he had resurrected, but nobody could ever find him. He was always sort of just with the disciples or somebody. And so I don't know. All right. It is also common. Like, for example, when I was a kid, my grandmother passed away. Mm-hmm. And I was like a few weeks later, I swear I got, I was at a paper route and I saw her in a parking lot. Mm. And she looked at me, waved, and, and disappeared. So I, I think like sometimes apparition, apparitions themselves are not really that unusual. Well, there's a belief that when you die, you don't really go anywhere. You just basically change frequency. So the essence of your personality doesn't really leave. It stays right where it was when you passed. And so it's possible that, yes, yeah, some of the disciples saw a ghostly image of Jesus. I don't know. Um, but I do believe in ghosts. I even wrote a book on them. And I get people sending me pictures of ghosts all the time that they think are ghosts. So I, I think they're definitely out there. And there, that could be a component of the resurrection story. Could be. Uh, that would explain why he was only seen by his followers, not other people. Because I, you know, I, I don't. I think the only time people see apparitions usually is if it's either a family member, or if they're somewhere actually looking. Right. Yeah. There's the, the, usually most ghostly sightings are. You're right. They're family members. Usually come back to say I'm okay. Don't worry about it. Um, but uh, yeah, and and uh, I don't see why it couldn't have been something like that. Although Jesus very clearly says in the gospel, or is quoted as saying, you know, put your, put your fingers in my wounds, you will see that I, I am a solid, I'm flesh and bone, not like a ghost. So he's actually dealing with this issue of the ghost. But again, it's just his disciples. Yeah. And the question is, and here's an interesting sidebar on this. Some people who have encountered ghosts have found that they were very solid. They actually would shake hands with them and not realize that they were a ghost. 
which is really interesting to me. So it's possible that a ghost can take on enough solid matter that they're actually, think of them as like a bubble. There's nothing inside them. It's just an empty, an empty shell of a bubble. But maybe under the right conditions, they can pull up enough, enough ionic energy, electricity, to, to manifest enough solidity that you can actually touch them. Yeah, why not? I mean, you hear about people being touched by ghosts. Exactly, yeah. They're, they're, so, so why wouldn't somebody else be able to touch one? I think it takes a lot of energy to do that, and mm-hmm. most, most entities don't have the ability to do that. But you figure with a Jesus, I would think if anyone could manifest a solid uh, apparition, it would be him. And it would, seems like that would be a pretty simple thing to do compared to everything else he did. Right, yeah. I mean, if he had achieved some type of enlightenment and, and had really good control over his consciousness, he probably could have maintained that after his body died and was able to re-manifest. Well, absolutely. There's even stories of yogis sort of being able to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I've I've been studying some of those and I'm still undecided about, you know, the veracity of those stories, but it does appear that there are people who have this ability to teletransport and stuff like this. And I'm still undecided. I'm still in the process of learning these things. But I've become aware in the last few years of going down this spiritual path I'm on that there's a lot more to reality than we're aware of. There's so much happening out there that we don't even see or hear. And so I'm not at all opposed to things like that being possible. I haven't personally seen it, but I wouldn't be a bit surprised if it were possible. Yeah, that's why I believe like, one, like all the unex- a lot of this unexplained stuff is connected. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't even know if, you know, humans in our, cur- in our current state as we are now even have the mental capacity to understand, you know, the truth behind reality. I think sometimes like maybe the best that we could do right now is I don't know. And I think that's the, the start of wisdom. It's, it's actually a, a, a teaching of uh, Eastern religion that if you really want to know God, you have to approach him from the perspective of uh, unknowing, through the cloud of unknowing. In other words, you approach God, you get rid of your preconceived notions of what God is, and then you can begin to find out what God is if you approach him with that perspective that I have no idea what you are or how it works, but let me know. And I'll just be open to whatever you show me. So that's a very wise uh, perspective to take on if you really want to understand the divine. Yes. And that kind of brings me like the only, like my, for me personally, like rule number one in life is don't believe anybody who's, who says they know what God wants for you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And also the other one is don't believe everything you think. That too, definitely. <laughs> That's the problem. Because so many people, if they think something is true, you can't talk them out of it. It's absolutely true. They say, why, why do you believe that? Well, I don't know. I just think it's true. You know, it's like, okay, that's not really an answer. But so uh, that gets me in more trouble than anything else. Me too. I, I tend to believe that maybe 90, 95% of what I think is not true. It may be, five to 10% probably is. 
Well, the, 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 here's the thing is, is we have experiential knowledge and then knowledge that we've gained from others. So something that's happened to you personally, let's say you see a ghost, that's something that you know is true because you've had that experience. You can have someone tell you it. And then, but most of what we know is really stuff we've learned from others, we've read in books. It's not something that we've experienced personally. And that's the stuff that gets us in the most trouble because we don't really, it's hard for us to really figure out what is true and what isn't unless we're one of those people who do a lot of research. But when you have stuff that have happened to you personally, that's the stuff that you, need, you want to hold on to as true. Yes. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit. You've written a little bit on UFOs. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever seen or experienced a UFO? Uh, yes, I have, actually. Really? Yeah, I didn't see a UFO. What I saw was a series of, I guess I'd call them balls of light that were spinning in a, in a tight circle about 50 feet overhead. Um, and this was actually in broad daylight right in downtown Denver. And uh, it was about 50, 100 feet overhead. And these, these balls of white light were spinning in a, in a clockwise motion very fast. And as they got to like the, the right side of the dial, they would completely vanish. And then when they came to the left side, they were very bright and then they would completely vanish. It did this for about, oh, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 seconds. And then it just sort of faded. And what I believe that was, was actually a demonstration of, I don't know, electromagnetic energy or something. In other words, I felt very certain that this was not something that was man-made. It was something to me that was being manipulated from some unseen source, uh, kind of as a show. Um, because here's the, here's the interesting thing about it. This happened in front of a building where I was at a, at a seminar or a conference about, a, uh, about flying saucers. Um, I, had written, <laughs> I had actually helped a guy named Stan Romanek write a book about his experiences with UFOs. And as an abductee, uh -huh. and this was during the break in this, this is like a four or five hour long conference. And so break, you know, we all went outside for half an hour and my son was with me and there were about 50 or 60 other people. And that's when we saw this thing. It was almost like it was trying to, to give us some sort of confirmation that what, what Romanek was talking about actually happened to him. Now he's a controversial figure. There's some things that have happened to him since and I don't even know what to make of all the things that I experienced with him. But it just, it just struck me as a really strange coincidence that I had this experience while I'm on a break from a UFO seminar. Wow. Do you ever hear of like that idea where if you have enough people believe something, it'll manifest? Yeah, that's the 100th monkey uh, or the 101st monkey thing where if – you get like a tipping point when, when, every, when yeah. enough people believe in something, all of a sudden it tips over the other way. And then all of a sudden nobody believes it or they believe something completely different than they did before. And I don't know. I, I mean, I think that's an interesting concept. I'd like to see more evidence of it, but there's something to be said for it. It's, it's for example, we could take slavery in this country for a long time. Nobody had an issue with it. It was just the way things were. And then slowly people started to say, well, no, this is wrong. We shouldn't own people. We shouldn't buy and sell people. 
And then more and more people sort of started to come on board. And all of a sudden, it all shifted. And all, all of a sudden, all of the northern states outlawed slavery. Within a very short amount of time, it was gone. It's like everybody got to a certain point when it hit a tipping point, the legislators responded and got rid of slavery mm -hmm. in all the northern states. Of course, that led to the Civil War and all the rest of that. But I thought that was a good example of how a, an ingrained concept I remember slavery wasn't just in this country. It had been in the whole planet for thousands and thousands of years. You know, half the, half the, uh, the people in Rome in the first century were slaves. So it's always been there. But all of a sudden it hit this tipping point where it suddenly was no longer uh, acceptable. Mm. And I, I like to think sometimes that happens in our culture too, that we get to a point where suddenly something that's always been there is no longer okay and then they'll go get that one more person believes it. And all of a sudden the whole society shifts. What I was thinking was um, this, the story about the apparition of Fatima. Oh, okay. You know how, how, how like you say she appeared and all these people saw her. Well, okay. So that's an interesting uh, idea. I think that there are such a thing as mediums who can sense these energies and actually can actually see apparitions. They're, they're pretty common nowadays. So it's possible that the, the, I think it was, wasn't it young girls who saw her first? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and then other people began to see her. Yes. I think it's, if you can, if you can drop your resistance to being open to the outside, to what's out there, you can pick up these energies and maybe even see them. So I don't know if you've ever gone into a place that's sort of spooky and you oh. just have this sense that this place, there's something going on. There's an energy in this room, which is really, really uncomfortable. Have you ever had that experience? Oh, yeah. I used to be a paranormal investigator. Oh, okay. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Absolutely. So you get that, you get that feeling that there's, this, there's something wrong with this room. And I think if, you're, if you can take it further, if you are open to maybe – uh, lowering your your blinders a little bit, you might be able to actually see what is what is there in that room. It doesn't have to be necessarily a bad thing; it could be a, a wonderful thing too. And so maybe something like that happened as some of the people's faith grew. They suddenly developed the ability to see this apparition themselves, or it could have appeared to them in a very different way than it appeared to the girls. You know what I'm saying? Just because they have the same apparition doesn't mean they necessarily saw exactly the same thing. They could have seen something in their own mind's eye, which they took to be that apparition uh, that was just as real to them as it was to those girls. Right. Um, and that brings me to like this next thing is um, the UFOs. There's pretty much like two main th big theories. One is that they actually come from other planets the other big theory is that they come from other dimensions. Um, right. And if they are from other dimensions, maybe one of the things that allows us some people to see them more is because they're open to it. Well, my personal belief, and this is what I have in my book, uh, UFO, um, the great UFO debate that, uh, these entities are, whether they're interdimensional or extraterrestrial, are allowing themselves to be periodically seen uh, because they're trying to uh, gauge our reaction 
to their presence and make us eventually ready for contact. And the way you do that is sort of getting us used to the idea of them being there. They can hide anytime they want. If, you don't, if they don't want you to see them, you're not going to. Whether they're interdimensional or extraterrestrial, they have ways of hiding pretty well. So when they come out and, and, and everybody sees them, they're basically saying, hey, look at us. We're here. We're here. And then they, they disappear. They go back to whatever they're going to do. And then they just kind of wait for us to react to it and see what we're going to do. And someday we'll get to the point, I think, where we'll think, eh, extraterrestrials, no big deal. You know, and then they'll be ready to finally contact us. Do you think like the angels in the Bible were extraterrestrials? Um, I think they're more likely interdimensional. Right. But even, even in that case, I think you're getting into a real gray area when you define an extraterrestrial from an interdimensional. It might be that there's a bit of both in these. Perhaps when you uh, evolve sufficiently as a culture, um, you're able to figure out how to become interdimensional. So an interdimensional being could still be also an extraterrestrial. They've just discovered the laws, the laws of physics that we're not aware of right now that allows them to do that. So the angels and the spirit guides and things like this, they could be a mix of just basically metaphysical angelic beings and entities that have lived in other, other places, other, you know, other planets. I think that there's so much stuff out there in, in, the, in reality that we can't see. It's hard to say, okay, angels are A, and, and you know, demons are B, and spirit guides are this. I think there are a lot of things mixed together in there. It's difficult to categorize. and That's one thing that us humans love to do. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we need to kind of bring order to all this stuff. That's why we invented religion. You can't just have people going off and believing God on their own. We have to have a whole bunch of, of doctrines and stuff so it, it makes sense to us. And I think yeah. it's the same way with uh, the metaphysical realms. We're so busy trying to categorize all these things and figure out what they are and, and how they work that we miss the experience of just uh, seeing them and interacting with them. What about, um, this comes up a lot, like you'll see it all the time on Ancient Aliens, any, any, these, some of these shows, um, Ezekiel's vision. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was actually a spaceship? I think that there's a, an excellent chance that that was. I, I don't have a problem with that. I think that these extraterrestrials, these interdimensional beings, have been watching us for many thousands of years. Uh, and why not? We'd be fascinating to them to see how we develop and see how our development is similar or different from their development. So, yeah, I could see that uh, Ezekiel's vision was – it looks very much like something that could be conceived, perceived as a UFO. I mean, I don't know what else it would be. I think if God just wanted to have an angel show up, it would have appeared with just wings and stuff. It wouldn't need all the wheels inside wheels and all these kinds of elements of it. Now, I do think that some of the UFO conspiracy people have gone overboard with it, and they come up with all sorts of elaborate drawings of it, and, and they read into it a lot more than was there. Mm-hmm. But I think that there probably was something underneath all of the, the hoopla that was really true. Have you ever noticed, though, that every, every painting you see of Ezekiel's spaceship, they all look very different from each other. So everybody's looking at the same, yeah. same text, and coming up with completely different visions of what this UFO looked like. Yeah, it's, uh, 
human perception for you. <laughs> exactly. That's why I don't put a lot of weight into that kind of stuff, but I, I'm not at all surprised to, to, to imagine that they've been here a long time and been watching us very carefully. Probably a lot of different ones too, not just one or two different groups. How about like the work of like Zachariah Stitchin, where he um, translated the uh, Sumerian texts, where it says that um, we were basically created by the extraterrestrials and used as slaves to mine gold. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it's a good story. I, you know, uh, there's a lot of people out there who have different uh, theories like that. Uh, there is some belief uh, going around now that aliens could have uh, engineered some of our genetics maybe 50,000 years ago, you know, created a, a 24th chromosome by merging two other chromosomes together or something like that. I'm not sure of all the details. So there is possibly some evidence um, of some kind of genetic tampering, but it doesn't make any sense that you would want to mine for gold. I mean, that sounds like a very human thing. We're the ones who think gold is valuable, but if gold was everywhere, it would be worthless, right? If you could find it anywhere, it wouldn't have any value. Nobody would care about it. But since it's so scarce, we put this high price on it and we make it sound as though it's some sort of uh, amazing material that even aliens would want. I don't know what aliens would want with gold any more than, than anything else. So I, I, I listen to some of these stories and I just kind of take them with a grain of salt. And yeah. if they show me some evidence, I'll look at it. But otherwise, I don't really put much credence into it. Yeah, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and he's working on a book about, like, ancient alien mines, and he has uh, an idea that maybe, like, places like the Grand Canyon was actually a place where aliens mined. Well, <laughs> I mean... Okay, if you're going to come up with a theory like that, then you have to look at the, ge the geographical evidence, uh, the geological evidence, and because we have a pretty good understanding of what made the Grand Canyon. So you have to, it's incumbent upon this guy to demonstrate why our, our understanding of the forces that created the, uh, that carved the Grand Canyon are not true and evidence that it was all artificially created. And that's, it's really easy to, to make a theory or a hypothesis like that. It's very difficult to prove it, especially to meet the rigid criteria of science. Uh, because I think it'd be great if that was true. I mean, I think that'd be super. But I, I just, that's what I'm saying is that a lot of people go overboard with this stuff. Instead of just looking at the available evidence and trying to deal with it, they go off on these massive tangents that end up losing credibility. Uh, with with people who are on the fence, right. that's always been my big knock against the UFO community, is they so they've gotten so on board with Roswell that a lot of people who would be otherwise prone to maybe being interested in what they have to say are turned off by it because they just don't seem to want to get past that one event and move on to the evidence that's out there now. Mm. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't know enough about the Grand Canyon to to say I believe or don't believe. Mm -hmm. uh, I do believe that there's something uh, at the very least hidden there because of the no-fly zone, and there's also this story about some guy named Kincaid 
who supposedly went into a cave and found a bunch of Egyptian artifacts that were eventually confiscated by the Smithsonian and hidden away. Okay. <laughs> well, that should be easy to prove or disprove. Just go through the Smithsonian's uh, vaults and see what you find, I guess. Well, I um, think they hide stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, conspiracy theories are kind of all the rage right now. But, uh, <laughs> um, let, me, let me just, just say that uh, I do believe that there is, they're coming up with evidence that humans have been in North America a lot longer than we originally thought. Much more, much longer than twelve thousand years ago, and there may have been um, perhaps cultures from you know, the Chinese may or the the Egyptians may have been able to emigrate here. You know, twenty, thirty thousand years ago, could have left artifacts. That's I'm open to that. I think that the, our history is very incomplete. Oh yeah, I mean, they say like some of the uh, Native Americans were like Jewish. Well, I guess if you're a Mormon, they were. <laughs> no, uh, apparently, like, like they did, they tested the DNA. Oh no! That, Native Americans come up as as Orientals. They're basically Mongoloid, so they, they're mm-hmm. actually from China. You can you can look that up. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if they interbreed, you know, with whites and stuff, you could get, you know, other mixes in there. But original Native Americans are Mongoloid. Um, but I mean, there's just so many theories out there, but nothing without, you have to have that substantial uh, evidence, that hard evidence before you make any decisions about it. Otherwise, it's just a story or someone's idea. And they're fun to believe in sometimes, but I don't really, I don't think it's a good idea to, to pin all your hopes on someone's hypothesis. True, true. And that's why I, I have such a variety of guests on my show mm-hmm. to try to get as many different views um, on some of these topics. Well, that's a great idea. That's the way it should be done. All the radio shows should be like that. <laughs> All podcasts. Let's see. What other interesting things do we have here? It's, I don't even know if I'm done with the UFOs yet. You had your sighting of the, sighting of the UFO. What do you think about abductions? I mean, you said you were working with a, uh, somebody who was abducted to write a book? Yeah, there's a local gentleman named Stan Romanak who uh, became fairly well-known for his abduction story. Uh, and, I mean, I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I suppose it's possible. I mean, certainly these, these entities have the capacity to do this. Um, there's the question of... Uh, lucid dreaming where someone wakes up and they can't move. And this is a well-known psychological uh, uh, symptom. It's called lucid dreaming. And they, they can actually imagine they're being abducted. But what I uh, learned from, from talking to Stan was he'd been abducted, I think like something like seven or eight times apparently. So it wasn't just a one-time event um, that, Unless he's the world's greatest liar, he sounds like something happened to him. And, it's, and there's been some very credible witnesses out there, even under hypnosis, who have recounted these events. So I'm kind of in the undecided camp. I have a drawer in my desk called I Don't Know, and I put it in there, and then I shut it. And <laughs> I just wait for more evidence. And so with abductions, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, I, I, I would like to know if they are abducting what exactly they're trying to do. 
and if I had that answer, then that would be a little bit easier for me to deal with. Yeah. I have a friend too, who says he was abducted and, um, well, I do believe him actually, mm-hmm. you know, the purpose of the abductions is definitely a mystery. Because I don't know for what reason they would have to abduct us if they're so advanced. Right. I mean, they should already know everything there is to know about us physiologically. So there wouldn't be any point in getting, you know, blood samples or anything. They'd already have that information. So all I can think of, it's some sort of a a psychological thing. Maybe it's something that is done on a subconscious level where it's genuine contact, but people are believing they're being abducted, but it's actually all taking place inside their mind and and it's a genuine contact but they're using the mind the subconscious mind to actually carry it out rather than hauling people up uh, you know into a spaceship and start you know probing them so i i don't know it's 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 an interesting subject um i hope that uh psychiatrists uh, put more work into it i think it's something that really needs to be looked at a lot closer to find out what's going on i don't think all these people are just crazy or just making stuff up. I think they're actually having some kinds of experiences. We just don't know how much of it is, is uh, real and how much of it's psychological. Yeah. And like, and I understand like actually my very first episode was on dreams. And one of the topics that came up was just sleep paralysis and how people see alien like beings. And it's a common theme during sleep paralysis. Um, right. So, you know, I, that might explain it like in that particular scenario, but then there's like stories of like Betty and Barney Hill, you know, or mm-hmm. or they're driving at night, and and are abducted basically. <laughs> well, what they had is that, of course, remember they had no witnesses; it was just themselves. What they had was like a three or four hour uh, loss of time, where they don't know what happened to them. And at the time, they didn't know what happened. They just were driving across New Hampshire, and they just all of a sudden it was four hours later, and they don't remember. And then they eventually were hypnotized, and that's when their story came out about being abducted. So, I mean, it's interesting as possible, but I'll tell you a really cool story that happened to Stan was that he had blown out his knee. He fell off a ladder, and his knee was in a brace, and he completely torn the ACL and everything in it, and it was all swollen up like five times its size. And he was supposed to go into the doctor and have it uh, operated on, but the night before he was supposed to go, he had an abduction experience. And um, he doesn't remember specifically being taken. And all he remembers is just walking around the, the kitchen at 2 o'clock in the morning. And his wife came out, and he didn't have the brace on. He, he wasn't in any pain. His knee was no longer swollen. And he had, like, uh, little, uh, two little, like, two little dots next to each other, like in a row of eight, right around his knee. Mm-hmm as though he had been abducted and operated on and then put back down. He has pictures of this and everything. And he even has the, the, the uh, recording of when he went to the doctor the next day and they looked at it and they could find no signs that his knee had blown out. And so you get stuff like that. And all you can do is think, hmm, I wonder what's going on here. I mean, did he just completely make this up? I don't think so. You'd have to have a lot of people involved, you know, all the doctors and everybody, his wife. Right. It's a lot. It's a lot for one guy to pull off. I know, you know, he's a nice guy. I didn't, I didn't really see him being able to do this. And then he'd have to puncture 
put little puncture marks in his leg, you know, uh, in, in a row. I mean, that sounds painful right there. Um, so, you know, I, I suppose that they could have an agenda and we just don't know what the agenda is. Um, I think it's something that just, we just need to keep an eye on and just, and really pay attention to and, and see where it goes. Yes, definitely. Um, so you had also written a book. It looks like it's out of print now on 2012. Um, based, based on the unknown Mayan calendar and you know, all the uh, 2012 things say that the world was going to end. Um, well, the book itself is actually more broad than that. It's about uh, prophecy in general, uh -huh. the history of prophecy going all the way back to, you know, the Bible and ancient writings, awesome. how prophecy works. 2012 was just one part of it. And uh, I just find the whole concept of people prophesying and uh, kind of interesting, especially how people react when it often doesn't happen. You know, there's been several cases in which various churches, for example, have come up with a date that Christ was supposed to return. And he doesn't, nothing happens. And these people still are, they still keep the faith. Even, even, even though the church, the church was proven wrong or whoever the person was who made the, re, uh, the prediction was wrong. And I, I just found that fascinating. So I wanted to do a whole book on, on how prophecy has affected religion and different, uh, different belief groups, because like mm -hmm. Jehovah's Witnesses is all about that. You know, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists are all about prophecy, and they've all had, uh, you know, been wrong about it. Yeah, and then I talked those, a little bit about some of those groups scare me. Well, when you have only one thing that you're about, you become almost obsessive with it. And that's, that's kind of taking away from the point you're here is to evolve spiritually in all areas of your life, not just concentrate on one thing. Uh, you're missing the whole point of being here. Uh, so, but now with the 2012 thing, yeah, I did go into a little bit about the mind calendar and what it meant. And basically all it was was the end of a 26,000-year cycle and then a new calendar begins. However, I've been noticing in a lot of teachings over the last um, few years from spiritual teachers, I'm talking like Eastern religion, mm -hmm. that they see 2012 as a year that the earth shifted from what's called third density to fourth density uh, consciousness. Yes. Yep, I heard that from several psychics that I've spoken to at mediums. That seems to be a consensus that 2012 is sort of a start. And then this COVID-19 epidemic or pandemic was an element of, of moving that shift along much more quickly, sort of speeding up the process. And I find that very interesting um, how all of this ties together with these Mayans who were out there hundreds of years ago already coming up with this calendar and how all of this stuff seems to be meshed together on some cosmic level that is beyond our ability to understand. I mean, you think about it, spirit is working with people who have been dead 900 years to reveal something about something that happened eight years ago to us, you know, and it just blows your mind when you think about the complexities involved in that and how all of these things sort of tie together right. to create uh, the kind of world where we need to, where we need to move into if we're going to survive. However, from a quantum view, everything's just happening at one time anyway. And time is just um, 
um, our our slow ability to process what's coming at us. Well, as physical beings, having spiritual beings having a physical experience, we need to have linear time in order to have any sort of experiences at all. We have to have yeah. a yesterday, a today, a tomorrow. But you're right. From the from the spiritual perspective, everything is happening all at once, but we perceive it uh, linearly. So to so you got to kind of keep a foot a foot in both worlds, both mm-hmm. in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm, to get this stuff all to make sense. Right. See, I used to think prophecy was like a way out there type of thing, and then when I started feeling time from that other perspective, mm-hmm. like, okay, prophecies makes sense now it, it can be done it's like reading a book it's like skipping forward and backwards in a book the whole book's already been written and you're just kind of going through the pages well what a lot of uh teachers teach is that prophecy is looking at uh probabilities and you you'll get like you say a society is heading in this direction the greatest probability is that this is going to happen but it doesn't mean it's definitely going to things can change so uh, you can. So that what, what a lot of uh, these teachers are saying is that prophecy isn't always 100% accurate, but because it, it's just looking at probabilities, it's not looking at things that have already happened from their perspective. So that's why sometimes these things change, and uh, prophecy really is not about predicting the future. It actually means specifically getting a word from God or getting a word from spirit. So whenever you're basically talking to some teaching somebody about something and, and you're feeling that this is this information is coming to you from some other source that's actually prophecy who's your favorite prophet who do you think has been the most accurate prophet oh um Boy, I don't know. I don't follow yeah. a lot of there, prophets. I have a lot of spiritual teachers. Who? Ed, there's Nostradamus, Edgar Casey. I, I think Edgar Casey probably is the most influential because he was the one I began to study the reincarnation through when I was still a Christian. Because Edgar Casey was a very strong Christian himself. In fact, when he woke up and people told him about these these things he said. Uh, under hypnosis, and especially around reincarnation, he didn't believe it because it was contrary to his his Christian beliefs. So I think he has more credibility in some ways. Nostradamus writes in quatrains, which are very vague. They are very vague. Difficult. They are very difficult to interpret, and I believe a lot of them had to do with events happening in his time that he was using sort of a code to to sort of. Uh, tell about these things and he wasn't really looking down you know 400 years in the future he was actually talking about things going on in his time that you couldn't come right out and say because that's a good way to get executed by the by the king (laughs) you know but if you could hide it in a prophecy or in a quatrain and then what a lot of people have done is they've taken these quatrains and they try to make it say things uh, for example, in one in one quatrain, it talks about uh, the German child and Hister, and a yes. lot of people looked at it. Oh, that he must have met Hitler, you know. But Hister was actually an ancient name for the Rhine River. And if you didn't know that, it's really easy to say, "Oh, wow, he was right on the button. He predicted Hitler." Well, no, he didn't say that at all. He was talking about the Rhine River or the Hister River. 
And so you got to really, when you're going to deal with Nostradamus, you got to do your research and really dig into what he was talking about in that culture. And then it makes a lot more sense, but obviously a very gifted man and probably a true, a true mystic. Hmm. So you would go with Edgar Casey then? As far as the more modern ones, yeah, I think so. Because uh, he, he did pick up like on the Depression, the Great Depression. He saw some of these things. Um, he also had some misses. But that's pretty much true of any prophet. You know, they're, they're talking about probabilities. So it's, it's very common that they make more misses than hits sometimes. Mm. But yeah, I, I would say that he is, he's the one. But I don't put a lot of a lot of uh, faith in prophecies in general, because I believe that we are all in a way our own prophets. And if we just go within that, we can get that information ourselves. We don't need to have Nostradamus or Edgar Casey or someone else tell us what's going to happen. We can just sort of feel it out for ourselves if we're sensitive to it. Right. But isn't like, like the reason the old Testament is included in the Bible is to prove the prophecy of the Messiah. Well, that's a, boy, that's a whole other show in and of itself. A lot of, the, a lot of the prophecies that were made in the Old Testament, I, I learned in my studies, uh, were actually post, post-dictive. In other words, instead of predictive, they were written after the event occurred, but they were written in such a way as to look for God's uh, uh, punishment or reward in them. For example, Let's say there was a big battle between the Jews and the Assyrians, and the Jews lost this battle, okay? Maybe 50 years later, they would write about this battle, but they would, they would frame it as God's punishment for their disobedience. So it became, it was kind of written in the form of a prophecy, even though it had already happened. They were trying to reinterpret it that way. So when you're dealing so with... sneaky. It is. Well, it, it, was just, it wasn't considered sneaky. They weren't trying to, to, to uh, fool people. It was just kind of the way that they looked at the world. And if something bad happened, that meant God was punishing you, right? right? And if something good happens, that meant God was rewarding you. That was a very simple world they looked at. And so that's how their prophecy was, was put together. A lot of the verses in the Old Testament that are used to confirm Jesus um, are debatable. Uh, the one prophecy where it, where it predicts that a virgin will conceive and, and, and bear a child in Malachi, which is often used to point to Jesus, that's why he has a virgin birth. The word that is, is uh, interpreted as virgin is actually ama, which actually means young woman or maiden. And in fact, that word, when it's used in the Old Testament, always means young woman or, or, or young woman or maiden, usually, usually a married woman. And that was the one time that the translators translated as virgin, which is a completely different word than ama, because it fit their preconceived notions of what Jesus was. So they're trying to use Old Testament uh, prophecy to, to confirm the New Testament. And they have some points where there's some, some parallel, but a lot of the times it's re- they're really like shoehorning in a lot of stuff to make these prophecies work. Yeah, I, I can see how they could do that, especially, like, I don't know what language the Bible was originally written in. I would imagine some of it was Hebrew, and I know, like, Hebrew, um, you know, the, uh, each letter has multiple meanings, and it's just really complex language. Right, yeah, the, a lot of it was in Hebrew, and then there was a, a Greek variant of it, and a translation 
but I'll give you a good example. Um, there was a belief that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. This was in the Old Testament, in the city of David. So the problem was with Jesus was being from Galilee, which is like 120 miles away from Bethlehem. And so they had to, the, the New Testament writers had to figure out how are we going to get Jesus born in Bethlehem? So Matthew comes up with the idea that, that Joseph was originally from Bethlehem. He had Jesus, he fled to Egypt, then came back and moved to Galilee. And then Luke has a completely different story. He has the story about the, the tax and everybody, you know, riding the donkey all the way from Galilee to Bethlehem and then the manger story, mm -hmm. completely different narratives. They both managed to get Jesus born in Bethlehem, but neither one of them are, are probably true. But it was because they were trying so hard to make Jesus into this Messiah based upon the Old Testament that they had to come up with completely diff different birth narratives that contradict each other, and neither one of them make any sense. But that's just the way you do it, because you're trying to make it say something that you want it to say. Man, I've been celebrating Christmas all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he's probably born in the spring too. What do you think of that? I believe it. <laughs> so then we've been celebrating Easter all wrong too. That's right. That's why I have my birthday in April because I, I, I do it in honor of, of, of God. It's interesting. Um, what do you think about some of like these, like Joseph, Joseph Smith? Okay. Finding, you know, a, a, a um, you know, another part of the Bible in the United States, including the Mormon religion. I have to be careful here because my uh, my son's a Mormon, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I love my I love my son dearly, and uh, great people, uh, all their family. Um, my own interpretation was that uh, Joseph Smith was probably a, a very idealistic young man who uh, got caught up in some religious fervor and put this thing together. Uh, I know 100 million Mormons are going to be mad at me, but um, I look at uh, what Mormonism has accomplished, not really how it originated. And that's the way I look at it. I, I think it's, um, it's, it's done, a, it's very good for the family and stuff like that. So I try not to go there and get too involved in what I believe about Mormonism. I've never had this conversation with any of uh, my wife, uh, my daughter-in-law's family. So that's good. So don't send them a tape of this. No, I won't. <laughs> but I really like these people, and they're very nice people. I just don't really believe that he had this experience. But if you want to believe it that he did, that's fine. I'm not going to take that away from you. All right. We'll never know. <laughs> Probably not. Not not really. Um. Have you ever got involved? In it? You have a book. I don't even know if I could pronounce this one right. I don't know if it's a fiction or nonfiction book. Um, Serpente Gigante. Oh, Serpente Gigante. Yeah. I can never pronounce that. It's one. Portuguese. <laughs> so I wrote a trilogy of novels on on a on cryptids. This is a couple, a young couple, uh, a young couple that uh, investigate these cryptids. They have one book is on. Uh, on this giant anaconda, one's on Bigfoot, a killer Bigfoot, one's on dragons in Tibet. So I wrote them as a trilogy, which are also available online. Um, but yes, yeah, Serpente Gigante is just Portuguese for giant serpent or giant snake is all it is. 
And what does this giant snake do? Does it live in the ocean? Well, it's, it's actually, it uh, takes place in the Amazon River uh, okay. around the city of Manaus. So what it was is the snake was genetically manipulated accidentally. There, mm-hmm. there was a, a Brazilian firm trying to make larger cows. And apparently the snake got some of this, this synthetic hormone in its system. And if you know reptiles, they never stop growing. They grow their whole life. So if you put a supercharged you know, uh, growth hormone into their pituitary, they might just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So in this book, basically one of these anacondas who ingested this hormone gets to like a couple of hundred feet, which is big enough to sink a boat, you know, and this couple has to go look for it. And of course it, it, they find it and it almost kills them. But that's the stuff of, uh, of adventure. <laughs> Reptiles do get big. I live down <laughs> the road from a place called Alligator Alley. Uh-huh. And there's like a gator rescue. Right. And some of those alligators are like the size of a pickup truck. Oh, yeah. And you I can mean, imagine if, if you gave them some sort of a supercharged growth hormone that, I mean, they would get massive. They would get to the point where they almost couldn't even move, their, move themselves. Yeah. I mean, they're just like that naturally. They're huge. I couldn't believe how big they are when I first saw them. Well, when I did some research for the book, I found that uh, anacondas as long as uh, 60 feet have been reported. Now, they've never been confirmed that long. I think the biggest confirmed is like 30, 35 feet. But there's been stories of them as big as 60, 70, 80 feet, which is large enough to easily kill a, a human adult. <laughs> I know a guy who kept anacondas in his basement. <laughs> he kept them in like these big baby pools. And then one day he disappeared and you had no idea what happened to him? Or? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what happened to him. He was a chiropractor. <laughs> yeah, tons of snakes. Did you notice any of the snakes had a big lump in their belly? Or? Um, no, I didn't. <laughs> but he, he, like, I know he was breeding Burmese pythons and selling them, like, you know, the classified ads of a newspaper. That's how I met him. But... I was shocked to find out that he actually had anacondas in his basement and he was feeding them live chickens. <laughs> you know, some interesting people. <laughs> I got to expand my range of friends a little bit. Oh, uh, wait, you, you, you already have given me two people that, you know, that I want <laughs> you to get help me get guess guests on my show. So, you yeah. know, some interesting people as well. <laughs> but none of them had anacondas. What can I say? Right, but I, I think this guy was just uh, an illegal reptile guy. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I saw the other day that they were looking for pythons in the Everglades, and they were trying to pull out as many as they could. I think they, they found like tens of thousands of pythons in the yeah, Everglades. Yeah, there's tons of them. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's not really a good idea to get that out of control like that. Yeah, apparently they had escaped during one of the hurricanes and – it turned out to be a good environment for them. Oh, yeah. It's exactly the same as South, uh, South America. Yeah. Um, so you have another book. I have no idea what this one's about. The Great Airship of 1897. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, like I said, I have a range of interests. Aviation is also one of my interests. And uh, 1897, there was a big uh, airship flap or UFO flap in uh, California in the Midwest where people reported seeing this airship or these lights at night. 
And so I wrote a book that basically worked from the premise that it could have been some kind of a, uh, a uh, inventor who had built this machine in secret in California and was flying it to the East Coast. So it was really kind of an early airship. And I talk about what it would take in 1897 to build something like that. Did the materials exist? Would it have been possible to build it? Uh-huh. So it's kind of a half the book is uh, sort of a, a technical book about how you would build this thing, how it would work. And then the other half is kind of almost a novel of how it would have played out. It was just a lot of fun to write, and I really enjoyed it. And I just hope people kind of take it as, with a grain of salt. So is this like a, a blimp? Yeah, you're talking uh, like a regular, like a, like a Zeppelin, except a little bit smaller than, you know, the bigger ones of the 20th century. But, you know, airships have been around since the mid-1800s when they were first tested. Yes. This one has just been a little bit bigger and faster than those. Actually, <laughs> I have another friend who's writing a book on um, ghosts of the Hindenburg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, because she's in New Jersey, the paranormal group I used to belong to. Uh-huh. And, uh Because the Hindenburg, that's where the Hindenburg crashed, and they investigate it all the time, and they're writing a book about it. Now, I'm not sure why the ghosts would want to hang out at Lakehurst Airfield, you know, and they have other places they could go, but, you know, if you can find them, that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's not out yet. I'm excited, though. We're definitely going to get her back on when that book comes out. Oh. Um, so how about Bigfoot? What do you think of Bigfoot? Well, Bigfoot was kind of one of my big interests when I was a kid. I, in fact, I got my start writing uh, when I wrote an article about Bigfoot, about the Patterson film. And you're I familiar with that, that one. one. And I wrote it for uh, Fate magazine. And through that article that got published in 2003, I was able to get some of my books published. So that was kind of launched my writing career. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in Bigfoot. I'm very open to the idea that there's these large primates out there. Uh, I think the evidence for it is pretty compelling. It's not conclusive, certainly, but um, I do believe that if you had a creature that had the, the intelligence of a human and the instincts of an animal, they would be very difficult to find, especially when you're walking around at night with all these camera, cameras on you and lights. You, like these shows you see on TV where they're looking for Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. These guys are stomping around at night out there looking for it. It's like Bigfoot can see you're coming like two miles away. You're not going to find him. He's just going to hide from you. But, but so I, that's always one of my pet peeves is these people try to look for these, these animals with, with uh, sound men and camera people with them. And you're not going to find it. Hmm. So you, but you do believe the Patterson video is real? I do, actually, uh, because considering the state of special effects at that time and Patterson's budget, uh, I've never seen anybody get close to, to uh, replicating it, even with modern, modern special effects. And if you really, now we can zoom in on it, we can do high-resolution images of it. Uh, fortunately, it was not done on a cell phone. It was done on 16-millimeter film. So you might have much better resolution, but you can see the underlying muscles underneath the skin and how they ripple when it walks. In other words, it's far too complex to just be a guy in a monkey suit, which is usually the, the standard response to it. Um, 
because whenever I've seen someone try to do a fake Bigfoot, you know, just put on a suit, you can always tell that it's a guy in a suit. I've never seen anybody get close to what Patterson caught that day. And that was my point of my article was that it's just too good a fake for it to be real, a real fake. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw that when I was a kid. I guess I was maybe like seven or eight years old. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's it. I've got to go find Bigfoot when I grow up. <laughs> Any success so far? No. No, no, well. You're sitting no. in that studio in Alabama, but, you're not going to find one there. <laughs> but if you go back on some of my episodes, I did um, an interview with um, Ron Moorhead. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, it was um, Bob Gimlin wrote the foreword to his book. Like him and Bob are friends. And, um, and I'm surprised because, you know, he, he started out believing that Bigfoot was just a cryptid or some type of intelligent bipedal animal, you know, or human or ape. And now he's open to like a lot more possibilities, you know, of, of it possibly being a multidimensional being or an alien or something like that. Hmm. Well, I've heard those the theories uh, of Bigfoot being interdimensional, which explains why he seems to appear and disappear so quickly. Uh, I don't know. It, it seems like that's unnecessarily complicated. It, it strikes me as it's more of a natural cryptid. And the reason I say that is because there have been, you know, Bigfoot-like creatures have existed um, over the last you know, hundreds of thousands of years alongside humans. You know, the Gigantopithecus, and some of these other big apes that had been around until very recently, you know, like 10, 12,000 years ago, they died out. So it seems quite feasible to me that uh, a, a very advanced primate like that could survive to, to modern times. You know, 12,000 years ago, it's just a blink of an eye when you think about how long life has been on this planet. So the idea that some variation of one of these creatures still survives in different places around the planet uh, to me, is not unusual. So, why you need to bring into it the you know interdimensional being? It, it seems to me it's unnecessarily complicating the the theory, rather than just looking at it as a natural event. Hmm. I also interviewed somebody named Thomas Seawood from Vancouver, and he was a native. He's a native up there, like a, a tribe, mm -hmm. and his there's. The, the, it's in their tribal lore is that at some point um, one of the chiefs of a tribe said you know we don't want to use fire and sticks as weapons or anything like that and they just took off their clothes and went and lived in the wild and turned into what we consider Bigfoot and they're just, just, they're just humans that adapted to living in the bush without any tools or clothes kind of like naked and afraid exactly <laughs> but a lot hairier but those people don't last very long right by about week one they're looking pretty pretty ragged <laughs> <laughs> actually about three hours into it they're looking pretty ragged but yeah uh, i don't know i uh i don't see how humans could survive you know, naked in, in British Columbia in the wintertime without any kind of clothing or anything. This seems to be an animal which is specifically adapted to this kind of environment. 
And so, I mean, I, I have great respect for Indian lore, but again, it's lore. It's, it's right. their kind of way of looking at, at things, how they explain things. So if the, I, I'd imagine if an Indian tribe encountered a Sasquatch, they might see it as another kind of tribe, another kind of Native American. Mm-hmm. So it might be possible that they would come up with a kind of explanation of what happened to them, just as a way of explaining it. How, have you seen the thermal footage of that skunk ape that was taken by Stacy Brown Jr.? No, I haven't. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, it was, was, near, was, near, was taken near Orlando, Florida. And um, it's very convincing. Um, I know Cliff Brackman reviewed it mm-hmm. and thought it was um, authentic. And um, it, it's just really, really good. Um, it's definitely something to check out. I've actually tried to get Stacy in my show. I haven't gotten him yet. Um, yeah, but I did have. But I did talk to somebody named Robert Robinson, who uh, saw the same thing in the same area. Well, my my belief is that these things are not confined to just one area. I think that they are migratory, and they're they're going to be found in areas that are heavily forested. One thing I did get out of the show, Finding Bigfoot, they would go to different states around the country and do their observations. And I was amazed how many states had Bigfoot stories, including like Rhode Island and Connecticut, you know, which are so small, you'd think you'd find Bigfoot pretty easy. Yeah. But they still, I mean, they have big forests, even in these small states, and they've had reports of Bigfoots going back many years. You just don't hear about them like you do in the Pacific Northwest. But my thought is that these things may just follow riverbeds and just move on. And if people start noticing them, they just move on to somewhere else. And then after a while, all the reports kind of fade and you don't hear about them anymore. So that's one, mm-hmm. one theory I think is very uh, appealing to me is that they're just, their migratory nature. Yeah, they could travel them, just back and forth like birds do. Yeah, exactly. Now, some areas of the country are so ideally suited for them that they, they might stay there, like the Pacific Northwest or the Florida Everglades, places like that, where there's a lot of, a lot of cover for them and a lot of food. So they may not really migrate from there. But they, I could see them moving through the Tennessee Valley or up the Cumberland Gap and places like that and just finding a forested area that's not been harvested yet and just stay there for a while. Sure, why not? As long as they got everything they need to survive. Yeah, until people start noticing you, and then it's time to move on. So you think they avoid people on purpose? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's something about them that they understand that humans are a threat. I think they're intelligent enough that they probably have seen humans hunt, and so they are very respectful of our weapons. And so I I do think that that's why they're very careful. Uh, about about being around us. I, I really don't think they would get dangerous unless you cornered one. And then you would probably have a real problem. Um, wood knocks. Do you think they do use the wood knocks as a warning? Oh, absolutely. I think they use whistles and, and knocking and all kinds of different uh, means of communicating. I think they even actually may have their own language. I heard an audio tape uh, at one point. I don't remember where it was taken 
but it was supposedly taken of, of two Sasquatch having a conversation. And this was picked up on a parabolic dish, you know, antenna. And it sounded to me like a, a real language. It was very guttural and almost gibberishy, but it sounded like they were having a conversation between them, which right. leads me to believe that these things are probably more human than they are animal. I interviewed the guy who took that, did that oh, recording. Okay. Isn't and, that um, interesting? Isn't that a compelling uh, audio tape? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It is. I thought that of all the audio tapes I've heard, that one to me was the one that had me scratching my head the most. You know, the howls and the, all the, the whales and stuff are all interesting, but that one was truly compelling to me. Yeah. And he, he also says the same. He says that he believes that they have a, some type of language that's they already communicate with each other. Well, like I said, I think that their, their difference between us and, and uh, them is very small. It might be just a couple of chromosomes different, but I think that they're, if you got a, if you had actually had a Sasquatch in captivity, I do believe you could probably communicate with it at some point, just like you can dolphins. And it, it, uh, it would be fascinating if they could ever catch one alive. I don't think they ever will, but it would be amazing if they could. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I know he has me convinced mm -hmm. as far as the language. Well, that second book of the trilogy I was telling you about, uh, that takes, that's a killer Sasquatch. It's a rogue Sasquatch that actually is not afraid of humans, but is actually out looking for them. Uh -huh. And this couple get trapped in a cabin in Vancouver, trying to fend off this creature with whatever they can find in the cabin. Mm -hmm. that's how the, that's, that's kind of the climax of the story. But uh, I always thought it would be interesting if you got one that went rogue or that was sort of homicidal, that would be a, a really interesting monster. Yeah. I also interviewed a guy who made a movie recently about Bigfoot where uh, a Bigfoot um, kills his girlfriend and he's the only person there witnessing it. And then he goes out in the woods to try to kill Bigfoot. That's the premise of this guy's movie. Yeah, the, the problem is, is there's probably not one of them. There's probably tribes. Yeah, there has to be lots of them. Yeah, so, so if you kill one Bigfoot, uh, all you're probably going to do is get all the other Bigfoots mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I always thought of the guy who uh, actually has the, the, the moxie to, to shoot one. Mm -hmm. uh, what's he going to do then? You know, he's going to have to get some samples and get the hell out of there pretty fast <laughs> because he's probably not going to be alone very long. So it would take a lot of, a lot of guts and a little stupidity to do that, but it would be the only way really to prove their existence. Yeah. Just, just cut off a finger and run, you know, at least you have yeah. a finger to show somebody that's going to be enough for science. Well, this guy, it, it was a, it's just a movie script and right. it's more of a tale of revenge. Uh-huh. And, you know, people disbelieving something that was actually real. It's just interesting how we, we need these sort of monsters in our lives to make our lives more interesting. I think if there wasn't a Bigfoot, we'd almost have to invent one. <laughs> Probably. I mean, I don't know. I think there's just a lot of mysteries yet that yeah. we haven't solved yet. You know, to me, I... I was going to be sad if they actually uh, discovered Bigfoot. 
because then he would just become another animal. And yeah, would lose then, all then, that then what do we do, right? You know? Yeah, we lose all that mystique. It's like if you caught the Loch Ness monster and you just found out it's a giant fish. It's like, well, now that's disappointing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so how about, like, like we, you brought up the, the idea of dolphins and how they're intelligent and communicate. Um, and we were talking about UFOs. And, you know, like, um, recently they came out with that footage uh, from the Nemitz where it's a UA, um, a USO that comes up out of the water. Um, do you think that some of these UFOs could possibly be some type of species that um, became technically, uh, technologically evolved um, aquatically? Oh, you're talking about an underwater civilization. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's been a theory out there for a long time. And in fact, that uh, what was that movie that was out, The Abyss? Yes. They did a good job with that, you know, whether you could have this technologically advanced underwater civilization. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's an interesting idea. I, I think there would be a lot of real difficult issues in terms of the technology because you're dealing at, at crushing pressure depths trying to build a machine or something at that depth. It would just be very difficult for me to see how that would work. I'm more open to the idea that extraterrestrials could set up underwater bases. I think that would make more sense to me that, cause that's the perfect place to hide is underwater, under the ocean. Oh, absolutely. You know, then you don't have to worry about anybody stumbling upon it and you don't even have to go that deep, just three or four 500 feet deep and you're perfectly hidden. No one's going to know you're there. So uh, that's always, to me, been a much more intriguing. Uh, the USO, uh, the unidentified submerged objects are always very interesting to me because they seem to generate this sort of light um, that people see sometimes. They have these, these almost like this bioluminescence. And they, yeah. can, uh, they can tell there's something down there deep. And this goes back into the 19th century when ships reported seeing these underwater lights that seem to be... Uh, coming from a particular single point under the water and shining up in, in rays up to the water. And they would just put it in the ship's log and keep on going. I had no idea what it was. Do you think that the United States government has um, advanced, uh, recovered alien ships in their possession? Um, no, I don't. And the reason I don't is because any advanced race is going to either have the means of recovering a crash disc or they would have a means of self-destructing it, just like we would. Whenever we uh, go into a combat zone, if one of our uh, advanced aircraft goes down, uh, the first thing we do is try to blow it to smithereens or to try to recover it if we can to keep it from falling into hostile hands. And I think an alien race would do the same thing. And then even if we did manage to recover some technology, it would be so far advanced of our own. I don't think we could even begin to understand how it works, much less replicate it. I go into the, a lot of detail in this in my book, the, the UFO, the great debate, where right. I show why reverse engineering is so difficult to do and why just recovering an alien craft would be so difficult, much less an alien body. Can you imagine the biohazard that would be? You're dealing with an organic entity with viruses from, you know, uh, beta reticuli. You, know, you can imagine what, what, what fun that would be. Maybe that's what we're dealing with now. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's COVID-19 from a uh, bit of reticuli, but... <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I mean, you're talking in the 1940s with the Roswell thing. You can imagine that the the biohazard team was pretty pretty loose back then. They weren't probably too. They probably just wore gloves. Would be about it. You know? <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I I think they did. I think they did recover something. Well, and, I think, and I think that some of our technology. Um, um, like especially fiber optics into silicone chip came from that because I don't think that we just went from using tubes and transistors to to silicone chips. That, that was too much of a jump for us just to do. Well, here's the thing though: is that we we've cataloged the steps that were taken to go from tubes to to circuits. You know, I mean, all, all the steps that were taken, how that was developed, the people who developed it. Usually, it's corporations. Uh, so we really kind of know how these technologies came. Now, that could all be fabricated as a cover-up, I suppose, but it's pretty extensive if you do the research. The point I was going to make is consider if we uh, gave a modern atomic submarine to the best minds, the best engineers and scientists of the, of the 18th century, so the 1700s, and we gave them an atomic submarine and said, okay, guys, you can – do whatever you want to do with this, replicate it, reverse engineer it, whatever you want to do. They wouldn't even be able to figure out how the copy maker works, much less how the atomic reactor works. And these are the smartest people of that era. Yeah. So if we had some alien technology, first of all, just think about if you don't understand how it works, how do you know that this little green button doesn't set off a thermonuclear reaction? So, so you're not going to start pushing buttons and see what does this do, you know, and you're going to start taking panels off and looking in there and nothing good can come from this. I'm thinking, and that's assuming it's intact to begin with. If it's smashed into a, you know, a, a, a giant ball of molten lead, it's going to be even more difficult to figure out what it is, much less reverse engineer it. You'd also have to have the materials that they use to make it. So then what do you make of Bob Lazar? Oh, I think Bob Lazar has been debunked pretty thoroughly when he first came out. A lot of his biography did stand together. A lot of the places he said he went, he, he worked, places that he said he went to school, have no record of him. Um, I don't know. I think there are people out there who just like attention. And I don't know for a fact that's the case with Bob Lazar, but he's not the only person who's done this before. There's been others who have tried to pretend that they had insider information um, all I'm saying is that if, if, uh, you, if you really were in this environment, if you were working in a, for a reversing engineering, something like that, and you decide to go public with it, I can't imagine that the government would let you live. You, you would be dead before you got out the door. Mm. And so a Bob Lazar should never exist. The moment he went public, he should have vanished and said, Who, what, who's Bob Lazar? We never heard of him. And that would be John Lear. Yeah. You know, that remember that movie Capricorn one years yeah. ago where they, they faked the, the, a mission to Mars and mm -hmm. people who started to question it just started to vanish. It would be something like that. So if there really was this massive government conspiracy and Bob Lazier knew about it, I'm, I'm surprised he'd still be alive today. Mm. So, so you'd leave the same thing about John Lear. 
I don't know John Lear. I haven't heard that one. No, he's the son of the guy who made Lear Jets. Okay. And um, at some point, him and Bob Lazar hooked up, and Bob took him out to Area 51, and he, he showed John the uh, space crash that they were seeing. Like, you know, he, they were taking in up, you know, taking off in the sky. And um, anyway, if you ever want to research a really interesting character, it's it's John Lear. Okay. Well, yeah, he, it sounds interesting. I look at the evidence. I'm I'm surprised they were able to get that close. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's I always I'm always look at these things like a detective. You know, more so than a, a cryptozoologist or something. I always say, does it make sense from a military's perspective that they would let you get close enough to it to see some civilians see it? I used to be in the military and uh, so I know that security is a pretty big deal. And you just don't walk up to a ship. You can, can I come on your ship and look at your nuclear weapons? You know, it doesn't happen. <laughs> and I can't mm-hmm. imagine that an area like Area 51 where you have all these black projects going on, secret projects, would let Bob Lazier bring his buddy over and show him the UFOs. It's just hard. But to we've make. had black pad plot black projects in the past, like <laughs> um, MK Ultra Project Paperclip. Right. Uh, Philadelphia experiment, Montauk, they've all been verified. Um, well, after the fact, but they never really turn out to be quite as amazing after you look at them, uh, you know, paperclip and all those. I mean, their paperclip, wasn't that just the uh, getting all the, the German scientists out of Germany after the end of the war? That was part of it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, a lot of these things make sense logically, uh, like, uh, I'll give you a good example. is Project Mogul, which is supposed to be their explanation for the Roswell uh, incident, okay? Mogul was a real, a real project. It was basically a, uh, a balloon that had a trail that had reflectors on it that were designed to detect Soviet nuclear blasts in the atmosphere. But it was classified as top secret. So when this, when this Mogul balloon supposedly went down on the Braswell farm, it left this trail of bits and pieces of, of transmitters and stuff like that. And the government did come in and shut it all down and, and told people to stay quiet about it because it really was a top secret project. So it makes sense that uh, these things actually uh, happened, but they're just misinterpreted sometimes, mm-hmm. I think. Well, MK Ultra happened. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll look at the evidence. I haven't done a lot of research on it, but there's, there's this, I mean, there's a, for everyone who believes it exists, there's probably 10 people to tell you why it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. And then the thing about the MK ultra is that a lot of that was actually declassified or the uh, freedom of information act. Mm. So you can actually find quite a bit on that one. Um, let's see. We've covered reincarnation. We've covered ghosts. We've covered UFOs. We've covered Jesus. We've covered Judas. We covered it all. <laughs> let's see. What else do we have here? So... A lot of your stuff, you, you kind of mix, it seems like, 
a lot of your interest in um, paranormal, UFOs, cryptids. Um, you know, you spend a lot of time, you know, with working in, you know, within um, a religion. Where do you see yourself going next? Like, where do you see yourself going with all of this? Well, I think it's just a, a voyage of discovery. I'm just trying to learn as much about the, the real world and the, the world we don't see as I can and just grow from there and, and see where it takes me. Life is an adventure, and, and I'm, I'm all on board for it. Great. Um, or do you have any, any projects that you're currently working on that will be coming out? Um, no, not really. I'm just right now I'm kind of in a study mode, just trying to learn as much as I can and then see if I get led to – to write another book or do anything else with it. So how about like this current situation? A anything that's going on currently that interests you, like the Epstein case or the QAnon? Or QAnon um, uh, well, I, I, do, I do keep track of politics a little bit, uh, but uh, um, not really. I'm Right now, I'm, I'm kind of studying channeling. I find that to be a really interesting subject, so I'm starting to study some of the different channelers and some of the works that they've come up with. By channelers, I mean people who are getting information from uh -huh. outside spiritual sources. Oh, yeah. I, I've interviewed tons of them. Yeah. And I, I find that really interesting. And I'm, I'm kind of experimenting with channeling myself right now. How, you've tried it? How, what kind of methods do you use to try to channel? Um, really, it's just a, uh, you get into a deep meditative state. And then you just start letting, uh, your, you sort of do a free form in your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And you can start asking yourself questions and seeing what sort of responses come out of you. Uh, right? Like I said, I'm still experimenting with it. I haven't gotten very far. But I find it an interesting uh, possibility that we all have this ability, this inherent ability to channel, not just a few special people. And yeah. I'm just going to see where that takes me. I just, I'm just finding that an interesting subject. So how far would you go? Would you try something like ayahuasca? Um, yeah, I would probably try it. I don't really know where I would get it right now because I'm such a nerd, but, uh, I, I would, I'd be open to different things like that. Yeah. I might be able to hook you up with some. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> well, you know, I'm in Colorado. I should think we should find it around here somewhere. <laughs> um, how about like an isolation tank? Well, I feel pretty isolated here in my study, but uh, yeah, I could try that. Uh, when you get into meditation, if you have a meditative practice or not. Actually, but, I wrote a book on, uh, called Enlightenment Guaranteed, the okay. only book on Zen you'll ever need. <laughs> so I'm pretty well versed. <laughs> if you're pursuing enlightenment, you're probably never going to find it. It's sort of funny. I know that. <laughs> That's the idea of the book. That's why I guarantee it because it's already there. That's yeah, sort of the I, joke of the book. <laughs> uh, that'd be cool if you find a guarantee I also saw a book called uh, Enlightenment for Dummies I thought that was pretty interesting yeah. <laughs> alright um, so before we wrap this up again um, can you um, give my listeners your website yeah it's ourcuriousworld.com ourcuriousworld and then the other one is quest for spirit and the, the four on that is a uh, is a number, not just the word for, dot org. And uh, they can see all of a bunch of articles on there, my books, uh, some bio on me and stuff like that. And if any of you other podcasters out there are looking for a guest, uh, give, me a, give me a call, give me an email.
Yes, definitely. Because he will talk about everything from Jesus, UFOs, Bigfoot. That's right. Even if I don't know anything about it, I can talk about it at great length. <laughs> you did great. You're awesome. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that I live for, man. It's <laughs> an interesting life. Yeah. I should start a podcast. It'd be a lot of fun. You should. I've been pretty lucky with mine. Um, hold on one second. I'm going to stop recording because I want to ask you some questions off the air. All right. And thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Yes, yes this is great. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. Please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Also, tell your friends, family, co-workers, and even that weird uncle. I'm telling be that weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Our website is www.everythingimaginable2020.com and Patreon is patreon.com forward slash everythingimaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You know, yes, you can also buy my book, Enlightenment Guarantee, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback.